Um, so Genesis chapter 39 this morning, uh, we, we took a quick break last week in tr- chapter 38 because the scriptures did, and we looked into the life of Judah, and I'm realizing I don't have my clicker. And when we look at the life of Judah, hopefully a lot of you were completely appalled by what was taking place in the life of Judah, because Judah and his descendants, uh, they did not take care of those that were even within their own household. And if you were with us when we studied about Judah, you would probably see um, in his life that he left a, a wake of destruction. You know, it's almost Memorial Day. Some of you are thinking about going to the lake. And there's the no-wake zone, and then there's the wake zone. And you get your boat up to, to full speed, and it creates this big wake. And sometimes when you go slower, it creates a bigger wake. But either way, we are like ships on a sea, and we leave a wake behind us. We have the power to leave a wake of destruction, and we have the power to leave a wake of blessing. And so Judah, in his life, and that's why I believe that it's there, for some reason my clicker's not working, in Genesis chapter 38, he left behind a wake of destruction. And you might say, uh, what was Judah's most obvious sin? Well, one thing I didn't get to share last week is that he didn't take care of the widow in his own household. Tamar, though she did pose as a prostitute uh, and dress up as a prostitute and create children through Judah, um, the problem was is that Judah was not taking care of her and giving her his other son. And so without getting into all that, you can look back into the previous chapter, he didn't take care of the widow in his own household. And you might ask the question, what does it matter on a macro scale? Well, it matters because the future of the southern tribes of Israel, when the kingdom splits, there's two tribes in the south, there's ten tribes in the north, and in the southern kingdom, it's called Judah. And in Isaiah, in chapter 1, I'm going to turn there real quick, the prophet Isaiah is prophesying against Judah, the southern kingdom. So the kingdom that comes from Judah his own namesake, what they get rebuked for in Isaiah chapter 1 is it says um, there in verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring me no more futile sacrifices. Bring me no more incense. Your incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, these regular gatherings, I cannot endure iniquity in this in the, in the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. That's what the Lord's speaking to the southern tribes of Israel. He says, therefore, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, and plead for the widow. Plead for the cause of the widow. So just as the patriarch Judah was acting in his individual life, so went the nation named after him. It affected his immediate family, and it affected the the nation that came from his lineage. 
And so you say, what does my personal sin have to do with everybody else? Well, everybody that you affect is affected by your sin. And if sin is like cancer that you can catch, it reaps corruption and if eventually it affects the whole nation. Each nation in the world is affected by every individual that's in it. Uh, we see that in our voting system, but in this case, uh, we're affected individually. We affect the entire nation. And so does one man's sin really make that much of a difference? And I would say, yes, it absolutely does. And that's why God doesn't call nations to repent. He calls individuals to repent because each one of us is a living stone in the kingdom of God and repentance should begin in the house of the Lord. So yes, it affects him. And it affects his family. First Timothy chapter five verse eight says that if any Christian does not take care of the members of his own household, he's worse than an unbeliever. He's worse. And then uh, the nation that comes from and is led by his family will be affected by their sin as well. And so that was just me basically trying to clean up from last week because I didn't cover that. But in contrast, we see the life of Joseph in chapter thirty-nine. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. So this harkens, so this harkens back to the end of chapter 37 in verse 36 that says, Now the Midianites had sold him, speaking of Joseph, in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. So in chapter 37, we had Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers. You're all intrigued. And then you start reading chapter 38, and you're like, what does this have to do with anything? And I come back to the point that it's pointing out there's a huge contrast between Judah and Joseph. Judah was a man who left mercy and goodness behind him in his wake. And, excuse me, Joseph was. And then Judah is a man who leaves destruction. But in chapter 39, in verse 2, he's been sold. And it says there in verse 2, though he's been sold into slavery and owned by an officer of not only a leader in Egypt, but the Pharaoh himself. It says, verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph and he was a successful man. I love this because there is a whole doctrine taught in scripture that is unbiblical at best a blasphemy at the most that says that if you serve God, then everything will always be prosperous and comfortable. But the problem is, is that here we have a verse that completely contradicts that. He's been sold into slavery. How many of you have ever been sold into slavery? Maybe sometimes you feel like that. Maybe you go to work and you feel like, I'm just a slave here, I'm just a peon. But here he is a literal slave to the sons of the Ishmaelites, And it says here, verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. And it says he was a successful man. How do you define success in your life? Here it says that the Lord being with Joseph made him a success as a slave. And so he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him. And that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. And so Joseph found favor in his sight, and he served him. And then he made him 
overseer of his house and all that he had he put under his authority. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake and the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. And Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Just throws that in there. By the way, he was good looking too. And so Joseph's life is a stark contrast to Judah's, obviously. Um, But it picks up where chapter 37 left off. But I want you to notice a key phrase in Judah, excuse me, I keep going, the J's back and forth, in Joseph's life. Verse 2, verse 3, verse 21, and verse 23 all point out the fact that the Lord was with Joseph. If you have nothing else in this life and the Lord is with you, you have everything you need to be successful in his eyes. You have everything that you need to prosper. Now, it might not be what your idea of prosperity is, but here it says that the Lord was with Joseph in slavery, in the master's house, in his success. He he was with him everywhere he went. And how did they know that the Lord was with Joseph? Well, verse 3 says that they could tell because everything that Joseph did prospered. Everything that he did to serve his master. Now, some of you, uh, most of you, I'd say all of you, none of you are slaves, right? But you all serve somebody. You may not look at it like that, but we all serve somebody. Everybody got to serve somebody. I think there was a song about that. But in your service to that person, if you will serve the Lord in order to serve them properly, you'll always do it without doing it just because someone's watching that makes sense. It's, that's the character of a godly person, is whether people are looking or not, you're the same. And here, Joseph shows to be a person of character. Now, I have there for you the reference in First Chronicles in chapter 13. I'm not going to go there, but what it says is that in the early kingdom, when David had the opportunity to build the temple, there was a tabernacle that housed the Ark of the Lord. And in there, the Ark of the the Lord, it it was in this tabernacle. And in the meantime, David had a house. He had a castle that he lived in. And so he said, I want to build a house to house the Lord's implements. I want a house for the Lord That's I should at least have less of a house than the Lord does. And so as he did that, he, he built a place And then he went to move the ark. And when he went to move the ark, Solomon would eventually build a house for the Lord. But he moved the ark and he did it wrong. And when he did it wrong, we don't have to get into that today, he left it in a household of a man. And it says there in 1 Chronicles chapter 13 that because the ark was in this man's house, that his household was blessed because of the presence of the Lord. And so here, Joseph is a picture of the ark. Something that, it in, in, something that holds the presence of the Lord, and because of the presence of the Lord is there, there's blessing. And so in Psalm chapter 23, in verse 6, uh, you guys know the psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He, he leads me beside still waters. 
He, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Probably missing pieces of it. But the way that it ends in verse 6 is it says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Goodness and mercy shall follow after me is the idea of what's behind your boat when you're going through the water. That, that what you leave behind you is a wake of goodness and of mercy, compassion. And when we do that, it's a sign, it's evidence that the presence of the Lord is within you. Now, as new believers, as, as believers in the new covenant, we don't go to a temple anymore. Corinthians actually says, Paul writes, that we are actually the temple of the Lord, that the Spirit doesn't dwell in a tabernacle or a temple anymore. It dwells in human beings. And so goodness and mercy followed behind Joseph as a type of this. Now, because of the character in Joseph, he was given favor. Notice this, he was given authority. Slaves don't get authority, by the way. But Joseph, because he was faithful, because the Lord was with him, was given authority, and therefore he was given responsibility. I'm going to turn to Ephesians chapter 6, because there gives us a New Testament truth to describe this. See, and this is why I don't get a new Bible. The pages don't want to act the right way. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, says bond servants. A bond servant was like a slave, but someone that chose to be a servant. Uh, actually, it's more like what we have. We oftentimes think our jobs enslave us, but we actually get to choose whether or not we keep going. <laughs> and so he says, bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, with sincerity of heart as to Christ, not just when they're looking, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he's slave or free. So maybe you don't think you get paid what you deserve. Well, guess what? Uh, serve the Lord and you'll get dividends in heaven. That's, it's going to be way better than a pay increase here on earth. But nonetheless, because Potiphar saw the presence of the Lord in Joseph's life, he put all that he had into Joseph's care. It says the only thing that Potiphar actually concerned himself with is, what am I going to eat the next meal? Where are we going to eat? What's for dinner? That's all he concerned himself with. And I don't know about you guys, but that's a pretty good spot to be in. So Genesis 39 verse 7 goes on and it says, It came to pass after these things, that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph. And she said, lie with me. Now, she's not saying, why don't you tell a false truth? She's not saying, let's lie about something together. This is exactly what it says. She's coming on to him. She's apparently got lots of free time on her hand. The soap operas are no longer doing it. And so now she wants to find some sort of pleasure in her day-to-day life. But, verse 8 says, 
that Joseph refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. He trusts me. My master trusts me. He says, "Um, There is no one greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now we're seeing into the character of Joseph. Character is not so much shown when everything's easy. Character is shown when nobody's looking and opportunity gives itself. And here, remember at the end of verse 6, it says there, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. So not only did he have godly character that was beautiful from within, but he was a good-looking guy. And so this woman who has a husband who is a leader of a nation, captain of the guard, he's probably off busy all the time and doesn't have time for her. She goes looking for love in other places. And so um, she lusts for Joseph. She begs him to lie with her. And he's a young man. And what does he say? Nah. But why does he say no? Not because he's going to lose his paycheck. Not because just he cares about Potiphar. Because he fears God. He fears God. He could care less what this woman thinks about him. He fears the Lord. And that's what keeps him from going into sin. So Joseph is tested here. But let's go on. So it was, verse 10, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, she didn't stop there, that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was inside. Danger, Will Robinson. This is a problem. That she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. And so it was when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them, saying, See, he has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. She's mad because he will not surrender to her come-ons. You know, it's one thing to say no, but to continue to say no, she's going, is there something wrong with him? Is there something wrong with me? She's a woman scorned, and hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. She's being pushed away. She wants what she wants. So it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So she kept his garment with her until his master came home. This is kind of a version of wait till your father comes home, except wait till your boss comes home. So then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came into me to mock me, that is to defile me. She's blaming him for everything. And so it happened as I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So it was, when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. Then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison 
a place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the prison. And so Joseph has found himself between a rock and a hard place. And, and I would suggest to you that this was no easy trial. Um, it would have been much easier for him to not get in trouble and do the deed. But here it says that Joseph was tested, and yet he came out spotless. And yet, even though he did the right thing, he still got arrested. Sound familiar? Uh, sounds like Jesus. Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, and yet he never sinned. So the question becomes, why was Joseph like this? Well, verse 9 is a key verse here. It says, Joseph saw all sin as against God. It's against man too, by the way. But first and foremost, it's against God. And sin is rebellion against God's law. He had a reason that could not move. The law said, and the law still says, that if someone you are with you're not married to, and you commit adultery with them if you lay with them in any possible way. And so here's the deal. He feared what God thought instead of anybody else. So the question becomes, how can we be like Joseph? How can we deal with temptation? Well, first we need to know that temptation happens to all of us, doesn't it? It happens to everyone. 1 Corinthians actually speaks directly to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. It says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to, to all men. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation, notice this, he will also make the way of escape. God sometimes does allow temptation. He does not cause it. But he will allow it because it shows us who we really are. The way we respond to temptation to sin shows what we really love. That's what it really comes down to. Do I love God or do I love me? And here it says, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will make a way for escape that you may be able to bear up under it. And so it happens to all of us. But Romans says that it doesn't have to rule over us. Romans chapter 13, verse 11 through 14. Paul writes to the Romans. He says, do this knowing the time, and now it is high time to awake out of our sleep. He's not talking about people that are asleep, but people that are asleep spiritually, kind of checking it, you know, checking the box, not really paying attention to what's going on. He says, awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and in envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Now, Paul would not have written that, by the way, if we did not have a choice to do those things. 
to make way for godly living and to put off and getting out of situations that cause us to be tempted to unrighteous living. And so temptation happens to all of us. It doesn't have to rule over us. In 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 22, Paul writing to a young man says, flee youthful lust. Flee it. Don't get near it. Don't play around with it. Don't put yourself in situations where you're tempted to it. He says flee. And you've heard oft quoted that sometimes to flee is the better part of valor. To flee temptation. And so it's wise to flee temptation. Notice what Joseph did. What did Joseph do when he was tempted? He stinking ran. He didn't stick around and talk to it. When I was a young kid, I was walking in my parents' yard. We lived in the woods. And I had my flip-flops on because why not? And as I'm walking through my own yard with flip-flops in the woods, guess what I saw? One of your favorite things, snakes. Some of you are weird and you like snakes. That's your thing. I hate snakes. And I saw it. Of course, you don't just see a snake. You're walking through and then it's like, it's not that it's obvious. It's that you walk up and you're on top of it and that's when you notice it. And at that point, I ran like a little girl. Seriously, probably squealed even. And as I ran, I was never thinking, I wonder if my flip-flops fell off. If they fell off, I would have kept running and later been like, ouch, that hurts. But in the moment, I had the adrenaline and I had the fear of snakes. In this case, Joseph feared the Lord so desperately that he was like, I can't trust myself in this situation. I'm out. And he ran. And guess what he thought afterwards when he was garmentless? Where's my garment? Where's my clothes? How did that happen? Because he, 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 it was his reaction to run away from temptation. It was, it was something that he'd been preparing himself all throughout his life. This wasn't the first time he'd been tempted, I guarantee it. But my point is, is it's wise to flee temptation. So how can a young man keep his way from sin? Psalm chapter 119 uh, deals with this. And, and I believe that the, the psalmist in chapter 119 wrote this very passage because the, the hardest time to flee temptation is when you're young because you haven't seen enough of the destruction that it causes. And it's when the most temptation is available to you. In Psalm 119 verse 9, it says, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed or listening intently according to your word. Verse 10 with my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. The psalmist hid God's word in his heart so that he might not sin against him. Uh, fleeing temptation isn't something you decide in the moment. It's, it's something you decide daily leading up to the moment. It's something that you work out for. It's just like some of the guys that were just playing baseball. They didn't just decide one day, hey, I'm going to get on the baseball team and play. There's a lot of practice leading up to the game. And so when the ball is hit to you, line drive to the, to the shortstop, and there's, there's a force out at first, and you might get a second out, that's something you practice over and over and over until it becomes muscle memory. You don't have to think about it. It happens. That's what fleeing temptation looks like. It's, it's something that becomes muscle memory. It becomes a habit so forced that when you get tempted to sin, your first thought is run. Your first thought is throw it to first. It's just, it's a reaction. 
And so God's desiring to prepare us for that. But I'm going to turn one more place in Psalms, Psalm chapter 105, where it talks specifically about Joseph in verse 16. When we trust God, when we're prepared by God, and we resist temptation, God uses us not just to bless ourselves and cleanse our own way, but he actually uses us as part of his larger plan. When we live righteously, he, play, he, he uses that righteous life as a tool in his bigger plan, his bigger purpose. Psalm 105 verse 16 says, Moreover, God called for a famine in the land. He destroyed all the provision of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with fetters. In other words, he wasn't just a slave. He was also put in chains. He was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested Joseph. See, it wasn't everyone else testing Joseph. It says here that the word of the Lord allowed Joseph to be tested so that his character would be refined and prepared for the day of big things. Verse 20, the king sent and released him. The ruler of the people let him go free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and teach his elders wisdom. See, fleeing temptation and dealing with it properly and living righteously when nobody else is looking that's going to care prepares you for greater things. And in here, Joseph is being prepared to be a leader of Pharaoh's entire province while he's a slave. The day of small things prepares him for the day of the real game. And so, continuing on, verse 21. If I can find it. There we go. Verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph. There's that phrase again. And showed him mercy. And he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So while he's in prison, he has favor with the head guard. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. So he's now given authority within the prison. This is a foreshadow of what he's going to do in the kingdom. Verse 23, the keeper of the prison did not look unto anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. And so he's thrown into prison for false charges. He's experienced trials and suffering. Uh, now, he, he's preparing God. God's preparing him for a promotion. And you might say, how can that be true? But we're seeing that in this lined out. And then he's imprisoned with the king's prisoners. He's not just thrown in prison. He's imprisoned with the king's prisoners. Do you think that's coincidence? Do you think that's luck? Or do you think that's God preparing the works that he has before him? I think that God wants him to meet one of these prisoners so that later he can be introduced to the Pharaoh. How else is he going to meet the Pharaoh? He doesn't run in the Pharaoh's circles. And so it says that he was thrown in prison but he was trusted by the prison keeper because the Lord was with him. He was imprisoned with Pharaoh's prisoners. God wanted Joseph to meet the butler, and we find out um, the cupbearer, which is the butler, and then um, the baker. 
So chapter 40, verse 1 says, It came to pass after these things that the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief butler and the chief baker. So he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison, the place where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and he served them so they were in custody for a while. So not only are they put in this prison, which I guarantee wasn't a small one, but they're in prison directly in contact with Joseph. So then the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, had a dream, both of them. And each man's dream in one night, each man's dream with its own interpretation. And Joseph came into them in the morning, and he looked at them, and he saw that they were sad. Now I think, again, we're seeing more of Joseph's character. When I'm going through a trial, I don't notice other people's suffering. Do you? I mean, not commonly. Typically, when I'm suffering, or I'm, when I'm, I'm getting you know, hit from work, or where I'm getting hit from stuff that's going on in my family, I'm, I'm distracted. I have my eyes off of Jesus and on me. And that's why I get so downcast. But I definitely don't notice other people's trials that are going on. I only notice my own. And so if that's the case, we see in Joseph, he's been thrown in prison unrighteously, falsely accused by a woman that was trying to sin with him. And then while he's in the prison, he notices other people's trials. Hey, how are you doing? What's wrong? That's not me. That's not like me. I don't know about you guys. I can't speak for you, but I, I see Jesus in this. Jesus is literally getting brutally murdered on the cross. And he looks down and he says things to other people. Have you ever been in so much pain that you're blinded by it? You just can't help it. You're just overwhelmed by it. Pain is a very powerful tool to get our minds off of what matters. And yet... In the life of Jesus, we see him on the cross at the very end of it. He's, being, he's, he's literally, his life is draining out of him. They're mocking him and spitting on him. And Jesus looks down upon them and he notices his mom who is weeping because her, her son's being killed. And he looks at her and he says this, Mother, look at your son and John, the apostle, standing right next to her. He says, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mom. In other words, I want you to take care of her when I'm gone. <laughs> Compassion <laughs> while he's being killed. And then, and then, and then, all these people are around him mocking him and spitting on him. And he's in pain. He, but his pain that I think surpassed his physical pain was his brokenness over the people surrounding him that wanted to kill him because he said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. They are blind and they don't even know it. Father, please show mercy. He's crying out for his murderers. And so here we have Joseph and, and he has compassion on his fellow prisoners. He was keenly aware of how his fellow prisoners felt why are you so sad? Verse 8 goes on to say, They said to him, We each have a, had a dream, and there's no interpreter of it. We don't know what it means. So Joseph said to them, 
Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me, please. And the chief butler told him his dream and said to him, Behold, in my dream a vine was before me. And in the vine were three branches, and it was as though it had budded. Its blossoms shot forth, and its clusters brought forth ripe grapes. And then Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. See, this is his job. He's having a dream about his job. And I took the grapes, I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. And within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his butler. But remember me when it is well with you, and please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For indeed I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews, And also I've done nothing here that they should put me into the dungeon. So when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was good, he said to Joseph, I I also had a dream. And in my dream, there were three white baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, and the birds ate them out of the basket on my head. Now, before we go to the interpretation, What's interesting to me is these dreams both sound very familiar. Both of them are dreaming about their occupation. Both of them are lifted up seemingly, and both of them are back in their old job. Out of prison, but back at work. So Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation. My first assumption at base reading of this would be both interpretations are going to be the same thing. But Joseph wasn't just making up what he thought it meant. He was gifted specifically by the Lord to interpret dreams. We see other characters like this in the Old Testament, like Daniel. Daniel heard a dream. He prayed about it. The Lord gave him insight to what the Lord intended to tell the person who had the dream. But here we see that as he interprets, there are two totally different meanings, telling you that it wasn't just that there was a guidebook on how to interpret dreams or some weird thing like that. But it was a specific spirit gift from the Lord. Verse 19, within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head from you. So heads being lifted, just not in the same way, and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat your flesh from you. You'll rot up there. Now it came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants. So the cupbearer and the baker have a troubling dream. Joseph interprets a dream. He now knows in part why God has him here. You ever wondered, why has God allowed me to be in this place? Why did God allow this bad thing to happen in my life? Sometimes we get to see why. Here Joseph has been in prison, and he knows it's not because he's guilty. So now, why, God, why? And then these two men show up. They have a dream. He interprets the dream. And then he goes, oh, that's why I'm here. God has a use for me. God has uses for us when we're not to what we believe we've been called to do yet. If you're 
called to go to college or if you're called to work a job that you don't like or you feel you're like you're called to use your gift in a certain way and yet you're in a spot where you feel like you can't do any of that. God's going to use you while you wait. Waiting on the Lord is not something where we just sit down and, and don't do anything. Waiting is an active work of faith. Sometimes it takes more faith to wait on his timing than it does to just do stuff and see what happens. So he's waiting on the Lord, and the Lord brings him an opportunity to interpret a dream. Two dreams both sound very familiar, similar, yet two different meanings. But how do we know if he's true in his interpretation? How do we know if someone's gifted to interpret dreams? How do we know if somebody's a false or a true prophet? Simple. If what they say comes to pass. If they say something it doesn't come to pass, they're not of the Lord, or they're just speaking presumptuously. Here it says, within three days. Three days later, what, they, what he said came to pass. So verse 20. Now it came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday. Woohoo! He made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. And then he restored the chief butler to his butlership. Didn't know that was a word. And he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. That was the one request that Joseph had for himself. When you enter back into the kingdom, remember me. Sound like the guy that was the thief on the cross? Jesus had two thieves, and one of them was actually broken over his sin and recognized Jesus' righteousness. And he said to Jesus by faith, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Jesus is the greater than Joseph, he remembered. I guarantee it. But here we have Joseph, his one request, remember me. When you're back in your position, when you're next to the Pharaoh, when you're tasting his wine so he doesn't get poisoned, and then giving it to him, speak to him on my behalf, please. I've been unrighteously put in jail. But the chief butler forgot about Joseph, and he didn't put a good word in for him. And my question for you would be, why do you think that was? I think it's because God made him forget. God hadn't forgot Joseph, but he wanted the butler to forget until it was just the right time. God's timing is perfect. God's ways are not our ways. We think just bust in there like a bull in a china shop. But his timing is more meticulous. I believe God made... The butler forget until just the right time, until the perfect time, until the day that Pharaoh would have a troubling dream of his own and actually ask for help interpreting. And then the chief butler, in just the right moment, will say, huh, I just remembered there was a guy that I was in prison with who interpreted my dream and his interpretation was true. Jesus foretold, by the way, Think about this. I received the question one time. If Jesus said it was finished on the cross and he rose from the grave, then why are we awaiting a second coming? Why does he have to come back? And my answer to you is because it's not time yet. 
He's gathering up all of us who would repent of our sin, believe in Jesus Christ for our salvation, and then get to enter into that same kingdom. But when he comes the second time, he's going to set up his rule, his reign, his authority, and he will judge all of those who continue to reject his salvation, who continue to rebel, who continue in sin. There will be a reckoning. Jesus came the first time meek and mild, full of grace and mercy. The second time, he's going to be on a war horse. And when he crosses the valley from the Mount of Olives to the temple in Jerusalem, he will cross a valley that is up to the bridle on his horse, filled with blood from the battles against those who rejected the Lord. He will come, he will set up his kingdom. Just like Joseph. Joseph had been given authority in prison. But one day he will have authority next to the Pharaoh. And guess what? Just as Joseph was not received by his brothers, mysteriously his own people, by and large, Jesus' people, did not receive Jesus as the Messiah either. They did not accept him as the Messiah yet. And yet what the Bible says is that on the day of Jesus' return, all Israel will be saved. They will see the one whom they pierced. They will see the one that they rejected. And they'll know he's the Messiah and they'll say, where did you get those wounds? And he'll say, I got these wounds in the house of my brethren. I came to my own, but they did not receive me. So, in the meantime, that's where we find ourselves today. We don't get any resolve. Joseph ends this week still in prison. So can God use us in prison? That's my question. Turn with me as we close to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul writes 2 Timothy to his son in the faith while in prison, by the way. The Apostle Paul imprisoned. He says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Then he says the hardworking farmer must be first to partake in the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. He says, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. I'm in prison, he says. But the word of God is not chained. I'm in prison, but that doesn't stop the effective work of the word of God. I'm in chains, but the word of God is not chained. As a matter of fact, every time Paul got arrested, he was like, oh, guess I got a prison ministry. Every time Paul had to wait somewhere, let's see who's around here to talk to. He never looked at waiting as an obstruction. He always looked at waiting as an opportunity. 
So I would say to you, as we end with Joseph in prison still, what do you feel like God has allowed in your life? Or maybe you don't look at it that way. What do you think that's happened to you at this very moment where you feel like you can't be effective because X, Y, or Z is holding you back? Maybe it's stuff you've chosen. Maybe it's stuff that you don't think you've chosen and you're just a victim of. Do you believe that God can speak through you today while you're still stuck, as it were? Or do you think that God's word is chained because of your circumstances? I would say to you what this says. God's word is not chained even though you feel like you are. So, Father, thank you for the life of Joseph. Thank you for his godliness, even at a young age, to flee temptation. It's going to be two years before the Pharaoh finally has the dream that he needs interpreted. And yet you made Joseph faithful. He's not the hero, Lord, you are. Thank you for guiding him by your word. Thank you for his example and testimony. And thank you that we have the same Holy Spirit that he did. It's Christ in us that's the power. It's Christ in us that brings forth glory in this life. So Father, would you pour out your Holy Spirit upon us this week? Whatever we feel chained by, whatever we're giving excuses because of, set us free from that thing. Even if we're chained by something, help us to realize that it's, it's the word of God that sets us free and we can be fruitful where you've planted us, whether we feel like it or not. Help us to see that from your perspective. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.